0: Hey guys, welcome to Brevity Code. Today I sit down with Dorian Willis, who's not a household name or a professional athlete. Actually, he becomes uh, somewhat close to a professional athlete, and um, we're going to hear about how he got there. But today's story is probably one of the most riveting, compelling, deep, heavy, emotional podcasts I've ever put out. Um, I don't really want to give a lot away, we're going to kind of hit you between the eyes, within the first couple of minutes here and um, I really hope you enjoy this one and I hope you listen to it and um, I don't know if this will affect you or your family but maybe it's one worth passing on um, to someone you know enjoy today's show on the brevity code podcast we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world we'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Brevity Code Podcast. Today, my guest, Dorian Willis, joins us. We're going to be jumping straight in uh, with Dorian, who's in studio. This is my first uh, local Idaho guest. Uh, I'm stoked to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks thanks for for
1: having me. me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited
0: to be here. Yeah, right on, dude. So, um, what started as a casual conversation with you and I, two perfect strangers, turned fairly intense and and compelling and and intriguing. um, So much so, I was like, dude. I got to get this guy on the podcast. So, uh, thank you for obliging me. Uh, I'm honored to have you on today, and to um, have everyone hear your story. It's pretty remarkable, um, and then it's it twists and turns and ups and downs. And yeah, it's.
1: Uh, I catch people off guard every time they ask me because um, you know when you, when you see me, I'm, I kind of stand out in the crowd. I'm you know six foot six foot one, two twenty ball guy, all tatted up. But yeah. what stands out is obviously um, I'm missing the, my right leg below the knee. So. Um, you know, people always, I get asked every day. It's a, it's a daily
0: conversation. Do they go there with, which I think was my, um, presumption was, you know, are you a vet? Uh, was, almost you know. 99% of the
1: time. That's yeah. where, where people automatically assume, you know, I kind of fit the profile. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you look like some kind of, you know, uh, special operations cause you are, you're built, you're stacked and you look like you're, you're a young guy. Like me. maybe you saw some some unfortunate circumstances overseas, but not the case.
1: No, not, not even close.
0: Not even close. And it was
1: you, funny you mentioned that. So this was probably a couple of years back. I was in Walmart, and right when I walked in, I was in a rush, and um, this old, little old lady, bless her heart, she stops me, and she goes, I just wanted to thank you. And, you know, usually I, I <laughs> shut that down really quick, but I was in a rush. I was like, you know, you're welcome, man, you're welcome. And I just tried to keep going. She grabs my arm, and she starts stopping people. You need to thank this man for his oh, service. And no. so I'm going, this is going to turn bad for really Oh, no. <laughs>
0: Fair enough though I mean I suppose you know on our quick assumptions that's that's yeah you know, you're gonna get that
1: yeah yeah
0: so um you know sort of jumping right in um, the 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 result of your loss of your limb um, was not war related but in fact if and correct me if I'm wrong um, you were that day evading the police in a, in a foot chase. Uh, correct. So, um, uh, for about two years,
1: um, I I was addicted to meth and it's, it's no joke what they, they say. And, you know, they, their, their whole theme is, you know, not even once. And there's a reason for that because Mm. I mean, one time, and you know, 90% of people who try it, they're, they're hooked. And, uh, (laughs) so that was pretty much the case for me too. And within two years I had lost everything and, uh, and, which ended me up at that apartment complex that day.
0: And and we're going to retrace your steps, how you got there, and, and, um, and we're going to go forward to some really killer and I think really unexpected um, positive results. Um, how many times were you shot? Uh,
1: 21 times. So that day I took um, six bullets to the left arm, seven to the chest, six to the right leg, one to the left leg, and one to the back.
0: How is it that you're shot 21 times and you hit – they hit no vitals <laughs> how i don't even there, understand
1: that there's a higher purpose you know there's yeah. a reason why i'm still here there's there's no explanation for it you know um it only takes one bullet you know one All bullet right. uh to kill somebody and usually that's that's the case a lot of times and so um uh, <sighs> the fact that i was hit 21 times and, and not just in limbs but um you know seven bullets hit my hit my torso and uh you know what one of them hit my stomach, um, went through my stomach. One of them went through the intestine. But vital, nothing vital was hit. Uh,
0: so tw- 21 times by what, a 9 millimeter? Or? Nine,
1: 9 millimeter rounds is an MP5. So every time they pulled the trigger is three-round bursts.
0: Oh, my. And how, what are what kind of range are we talking about here?
1: Uh, 10 feet max. 10 feet? Yeah, so point-blank <laughs> point range. if If... If I'm correct, I believe that they fired 34 rounds. Um, so there was two officers. They unloaded their clips. Um, both officers unloaded their clips, and, and um, out of the 34 um, bullets, 21 of them hit me.
0: And and so they're close range. And now are you you're behind a partition and a wall, or are they seeing? Um, like where? So what's the circumstance? They, they had
1: been. Um, they showed up at the apartment complex that I had been hiding out at. I had a warrant at that time for my arrest for a modified firearm. Um, I was doing collections for, for drug dealers, and um, I had a sawed-off shotgun underneath my front seat when they pulled me over one day. and um, So I had caught the modified uh, weapons charge, and it went um, federal. And instead of being a state charge, they, they charged me federally. And so it's different with the with federal charge, because you don't get a bond out. There's no bail. And so you either sit in that jail cell until you're released on your own recognizance, or... Um, uh, they release you into somebody's care until your court date, and then you show up. So the only reason why they um, let me out was because my mother showed up that day for court, and she asked the judge, you know, he has two two kids. Will you please uh, release him into our care until his his set state? That way he can spend time with his kids. That was the only reason why I was out.
0: I even know if you could get a in Idaho. another know they're pretty lenient on the. Oh, you said modified gun charge. I was thinking like.
1: Well, anything goes in Idaho. Well, in, you know, <laughs> clearly not. But. Honestly, in in other state like maybe California, Colorado, something like that, I, I probably would have got a slap on the wrist. At when it went went federal, and and um, you know maybe had some probation. You know, it was my first real charge. I, mean, I had a lot of uh, misdemeanor things from when I was younger and stuff, but uh, I never had any other major charges. And, uh, the only reason why it really went federal, they had been trying to stick something on me for a little while they they knew what kind of person I had become and what I was okay. doing and so okay. um they they tried to stick it to me.
0: So you're you're hiding out and you obviously were tipped off that that they were looking actively well, so looking for you or No, what
1: I knew they were looking for me but the day that um all this happened um I was actually that day I was planning on leaving town I had you know, about $10,000 in my pocket that I had um, stacked up doing collections and whatnot. So I was on my way out of town. I I had come down, jumped in my Suburban, was pulling out of the apartment complex. It was up on uh, the north end and uh, up off 8th Street. And as I'm pulling out of the apartment complex, I see seven or eight cop cars coming up the hill. And uh, as soon as I saw them, I thought somebody ratted me out, you know, and – I'm high as a kite, you know, I'm paranoid, so as as soon as I saw him, I threw the Suburban I had in reverse, and I'm flying through the parking lot in reverse, and so they see me, you know, it's like, hello, (laughs) you know, uh, but I'm flying through the parking lot in reverse, and uh, throw it up in the parking spot, Uh, probably not very well, because I was going in reverse, but jumped out, I had stuff on me, so I run back up to the apartment complex, um, to the apartment I was hiding out at, Uh, you know, telling the cops were coming, I'm flushing what, you know, what's in my pocket he's trying to get rid of everything and um i was only in the apartment for maybe a minute maybe and so i go to make a break out the back door there's on the second story and uh when i opened up the door um they had already started surrounding the building and so that kind of shot <laughs> the back door exit out of the water and so uh what i ended up doing was going into the bedroom and uh in the closet in the bedroom i punched a hole in the ceiling and, and I got up into the the attic space and pulled a box in front of the hole that I had made, and so when they opened up the the um closet, you know they you couldn't see the the hole in the top. you just saw boxes and whatnot. pretty clever so well <laughs> i it, it, panic mode is what I was in at that point
0: well okay, so then, but what eventually leads to them unloading their clips like so that you obviously it got escalated and it went up a notch from you hiding so
1: how yeah, so that that's uh so
0: or is that a point of contention? I, is
1: that Well, so I think a couple things uh because of what I had been doing leading up to that, they knew that um I was not a nice person. I'm sure that the police had some kind of idea that I was doing collections, that I was, you know, using any means necessary to to do these and so um they knew what kind of person I was. So they're already on on high alert just because of that, and then um, uh, they they don't know if I have anything on me. And probably then, knew your profile. Like you're yeah. pretty big
0: dude, pretty intimidating guy. Well, and
1: then um, also I think they were, probably got pissed off after three hours. This last lasted for three hours before they they finally found me. Um, and so I think you know after three hours of SWAT going through apartment after apartment. They were probably pissed off, you know um, yeah. <laughs> tired of tired of doing it and and uh, but that's no reason to unload clips on a guy well no and and that's been kind of the big debate and and where people um, with my story, a lot of people get hung up on, so um, you know did I deserve to be shot that many times uh, I, I don't think anybody can can look me in the face and say, dude, you didn't have a weapon, you got shot twenty one times that day, you know." That was excessive. No, no other way to put it. That was excessive. Uh, when you're point-blank range with somebody, you pull that trigger one time, three bullets are coming out. If, if you're a trained professional, one, one pull of the trigger, I drop. Right. There's no... They no. were trying to kill you, clearly. 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 So, you know.
0: but, but we're missing the... Get. There's one... I don't, I don't quite get, and maybe you could clarify. So you're in your the attic crawl space and you've got the box over the hole, <clears throat> and you can hear them all around you, I assume. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, everywhere. So this was my whole game plan. So I got up in the, the attic. I went all the way across the apartment complex. Oh, okay, hat. okay. And so I come down into this other apartment, and my whole game plan was they knew I was in that, this apartment down here. If I can get down this other one, I'll jump in the closet, change my clothes real quick, put on a hat, and walk right out the front door. That mm-hmm. was, that's mm-hmm. what I was planning on doing. And so, you know, that was the best. I figured the best shot that I had. And if I did it quickly, you know, I could get out of there. Uh, Because there was so much going on at that moment. You know, cops are all over the place. And and they had seen what apartment I was going into. So I bust down into this... uh, apartment and if you can there's it, a scene it should be a movie so i drop out 220 pound white guy bald all tatted up dropping through the ceiling like a maniac and uh so luckily no one was home at this apartment because i would have probably gave him a heart attack you
0: dropped through the drywall like right yeah, through the ceiling right through the ceiling boom
1: <laughs> yeah right right yeah so i i come down and uh like i said luckily no one was home because it, the apartment ended up Along to some little old lady. So when oh, I go, I go into the closet and there's nothing but dresses, high I heels know. and pumps.
0: I'm going, well, that shot that idea of to I'm shit. G- <laughs> so they hear the, they're not there in the apartment. They hear it. They, no, they, they didn't hear it They That's didn't because I was all
1: the way on the other side of the apartment okay. complex from where they were. Um, they didn't, they didn't hear anything. So, I dropped down, but there's nothing for me to change into. And so I'm just going, well, shit, you know, what do I do? So I was on the side of the building now where all the uh, police were parking. So I opened up the the window, and I was just sitting there listening to them for like an hour. And uh, it was about an hour into it before I heard a cop say, "Um, there's a hole in the ceiling. And so
0: when I heard that, I
1: was like, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's on now. So um, actually, the way that the apartments were set up, um, there's like... uh, four four doors four glass doors on the front front when you walk through the glass door there's two apartments on the bottom two on the top so there's you know it's one building but there's four of those stacked side by side and so i came out from the second story from the apartment i was in and i looked down around the corner through the glass i didn't see any cops so i tried to run downstairs real quick to get into one of the ones apartments downstairs Right when I get to the bottom of the stairs, um, this—it was will never forget her face. It was a, a woman police officer walks in front of the door. She looks over, and she's, you know, she's like, oh, shit, she sees me. I see her. Um, I panic, and I bolt fr- uh, and kick the door off the hinges of the apartment that was right in front of me. Just boom. Was anyone home there? No, no. Okay. So this is, this is about probably 10 o'clock, if I remember correctly, around 10 o'clock in the morning. So okay. most people were at work at this point, which is good. Yeah. Um, But uh, so I just blow this door off the hinges and I run into the bedroom and there was two dressers in the bedroom. There was a tall one um, and then one of the um, short ones with a vanity mirror on it. And so I take the the big one and I throw it in between the wall and the door, wedge it between the wall and the door. And I pull the other one away from the wall a little bit, kick a hole in the wall and jump down. And the way that the um, apartment sat on the hillside, it kind of staggered up the hill. And so... Uh, when I went down or when I went through the wall, it actually went into the, the crawl space, mm-hmm. not the apartment over because of mm-hmm. the way it staggered up. And so I ended up in the, the uh, crawl space now. So I, I went from the attic to now I'm in the crawl space when, and I pulled the dresser in front of the hole. So, you know, here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> so they said it was a tactical nightmare, which I can I can only imagine when you think you got somebody pinned down in, in a in a room. And then, uh, you know, I, when I got in the crawl space. Um, I see a little light on the other side coming through a, a hole. And so I, I went over there, and, and the hole led to the basement of the apartment complex, which was set up for storage units for the different apartments. So I get in through this little access door into the, the basement. Right when I get into the basement, I hear a flash grenade go out. Boom! You know, so into that, the room you were in. Into the room it. I was just in. So they're storming that room. Oh. And um, you know, when they get in there, it's like... <laughs> fuck this guy go you yeah. know he disappeared again yeah and um so uh, i'm looking you know now I'm, there's i'm in the basement you know, you're you're not going i'm anywhere not going now. anywhere there's yeah. there's yeah there's two doors leading out um you know one went upstairs into the into the uh, hallway of the apartment and then the other one led to outside and um so uh, i'm running around and i walk over this board that's on you know it's a concrete floor and i walk over this board and it sounded hollow. So I lifted up the board and there was a hole and cut out of the concrete for plumbing repair. So, like, like just barely big enough for me to sit say, in. I say,
0: yeah, your space choices are limited. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I, <laughs> it kept getting tighter and tighter for me. <laughs> right. So I, uh, right when I lift up the board and I see the hole, I hear the door. Um, Somebody coming, you know, open the door to come downstairs. So I jump in this hole, pull the board over me real quick, and I mean the the, the board is literally—if I looking up, the board's touching my nose. That's how tight. Like it was. a
0: coffin. Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah, and
1: okay. that's how it felt. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's exactly how it felt. And you're me. laying.
0: You're are you laying parallel? Are you standing? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, are you standing or are you laying?
1: I'm I'm laying down on so, your back on my back with the
0: floorboard to your touching your nose. Yep,
1: and and so. Wow. Um, okay. It wasn't. Probably ten seconds after I slid that board up um, to cover me up, that um, the dog, the dog came down. He's scratching at the board. They're, they're canine, scratching at oh the board. But I, they didn't realize that that there was a hole. So they they keep ushering the dog on. So you know they usher him on and, and they they go. It, and I'm I'm going, man. I, there's no way I get this lucky where they they run over the top of me two or three times and then give up. You know, but. Um, so I'm in this hole for probably 45 minutes. The dog had come back the second time, scratching on the board. They ushered the dog, the canine on, you know, and so they're going in circles. Um, they know I'm somewhere around that area, but they, they can't find me. And so it was the third time that the dog came scratching at the board that they realized, shit, he's under there. Okay. So, um, as soon as they realized that, I hear the cops going, you know, come out. We know you're under there. Come out with your hands up, do it slowly. And at this point, you know, I'm high as a kite. I'm pissed off at the world. I know that I'm going to jail. You know, this whole three-hour standoff, um, and it ends here. This is, and so I'm just pissed off. I, I remember pushing the board over and standing up. And when I stood up, all I could see is the lights from the rifle. So I got my left arm up, kind of shielding the light out of my face, which um, really, uh, they think, saved my life because when they started firing, um, the bullets that would have hit me in the head were redirected when they hit my arm. And so instead oh. of hitting me in the face, they were <sighs> redirected just enough to where wow. nothing hit me in the head. You got shot in your
0: arm six times? Six times.
1: Yeah, so... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so um, I got my, my arm up, you know, shielding my, my face. And uh, I, the dogs, I'm just expecting the dogs to start chewing me yeah. up any second.
0: <clears throat> uh, do you recall any... Um... Any conversation between the officers at that point? So you come up out of the floorboards, like you said, sort of angry at the world. They're angry at you because you, <laughs> you've you been – you've done a masterful job <laughs> of houdini them for hours. <laughs> uh, is there any words exchanged or do you just feel like you stand up and they've had enough and, and you're a scumbag as far as they're concerned and you're done? Uh, so they've made their
1: decision. The only uh – Words at that point that were were exchanged was get down on the ground, and I said fuck you. When my arm comes up, I'm, I'm flipping them off. You know, my, my <laughs> right arm comes up, fuck you. And when my arm comes up, they said that they thought I was pulling a weapon. And so at that point mm. in time, um, that's when as soon as my hand came up, they pop 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 pop. <clears throat> it sounded like the Fourth of July. Um, I got hit so many times all at once. I remember when I hit the ground, um, I started patting. I thought that I got hit with some kind of um, chemical or, because or, oh. um, I felt like I was on fire, like literally, some like somebody poured gas on me and uh-huh. lit a match, uh-huh. and so I'm patting my chest and I'm patting my arm, and I look down, and uh, you know, it was like a cartoon. There's blood squirting out of my chest, you know, and and that's when it, it, did, it only took a second, you know, but uh, that's when I realized
0: I, I'd just been shot.
1: I just and, got um, the chills. Uh,
0: so, okay, so you're now you're you're laying there, you're conscious. Yeah. And they've unloaded their clips. There is blood everywhere. Are, are they in? A, what I mean, you are not dead. No. So, do do you feel again? This is probably all. I don't know if it was happening in slow motion for you. Maybe, maybe a bit. But do you recall them going? Okay, get an ambulance. Like what? What's the? Ne- you are laying there now. Now you are in need of their assistance. It was. And they don't want to help you. No, no, they they don't. They don't. You know they. Um, and this
1: is where, uh, this is the only part in the story that gets, um, really, uh, hairy with he said, she said, mm-hmm. because there's only three people in that basement, me and the two officers. Mm-hmm. The, those are the only three people that know what happened. Um, was it the female officer that saw you go mm-hmm. in? She no, one? no, this is female a two officer. guys from the SWAT, okay. SWAT team. So, okay. um, and, but I just want to put it out there. You know, when we get to this part of the story, I do not have any kind of animosity towards the police it was my fault that I was in that basement today. day at the end of the day if I wasn't using drugs if I hadn't have done everything that I had been doing for the last two years I would have never been put in that position so right. the, I just want to I take I take accountability for my actions that led to that um, as a, a trained professional you know I think that things could have been ha- handled
0: way differently that day for sure Okay, so take me through that now. You're okay. you're laying their shot. There's you. You feel like the chemical burn. I can't yeah, even. Yeah, it was.
1: Um, it, it was really um crazy and surreal. Like there's there's. I remember everything so vividly, and you know that's. Uh, they go well. You know your memory could have been a little hazy that day. No, no, no. I remember. Everything and the the thing that really stands out to me whenever I think about that moment was the the way um, my breath, the way I was breathing, mm. uh, kind of drowned all the other noise out. It was like that's all I could <gasps> because I could feel my lungs filling up with blood, like I was suffocating. Um, so if you can imagine drowning, hey. drowning, <laughs> uh, you know, that's how it felt. And so um, one of the officers, I can I can hear him on the radio, you know. Um, shots fired, blah, 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 and one of the officers um, leans down, and with everything that was left in me, in me, you know, whatever piss and vinegar I had left in me, um, I, I tried to take the swing, you know, oh with 21 bullets in me, and, <laughs> and I, he stood up, and that, that the last thing I remember hearing was, let's get this piece of shit outside. That was the last
0: thing I remember hearing. It's amazing they didn't finish you off. It's a lot cleaner. Lock cleaner for one, just go, boom, oh, oh. gun went off, Sorry. And
1: uh, I, I've thought about that too, and they, and they probably would have been okay with that too, you know. I, and I, I don't know, you know. I, I've heard different things, and and you know, I'm sure at the end of the day, having to unload a clip on somebody, um, any normal person, you would think that that would be kind of, that would mess you up in the head a little bit too. And uh, you know, from all everybody that I've asked, um, I've sat down with the chief of police, great guy, Bill Bones. I'm um, going to have a conversation with him. I've sat down with several other officers. And, and it's just like anything else in, in this in this world. No matter what profession you're in, there's good and bad. Good and bad. And cops, doctors, sure. lawyers, bankers, whatever it is, there's good and bad yeah. in, in everything. And um, uh, everybody that I've talked to said that these two officers are, are stand-up guys. And um, have you reconciled with these guys? uh, I've I've tried several times. I've offered um, probably three or four times to reach out to, you know, just sit across from because, it's not that I need closure. Like I'm what happened that day happened. And um, uh, it it just is what it is.
0: Do you do you have and we're going to kind of go back to that scene. But do you have sort of a PTSD now Um, because of the trauma of that day? Uh, like, I I don't have um, PTSD
1: to where, like, on 4th of July here if I work off and I start losing losing it, you know. Um, I think the one thing that it definitely changed for me was sleep. <laughs> um, I, I just have a really, really hard time finding that, you know. To this day? Yeah, yeah. Ever since then, um, I, I just don't. What does
0: your sleep pattern look like?
1: Uh, I go to bed really, really late. Like, um, I, I'll be up you know, working, doing whatever until probably you know, twelve, one o'clock and I'll try to go to bed, maybe get a few hours. Uh usually wake up around three thirty, four o'clock and, and uh uh get up and walk around, sit on the couch for half an hour and then try to go back get a few hours sleep. That's pretty much my pattern.
0: Like seven days a week.
1: Yeah. Huh yeah, so to do the things that I've done the last, uh, you know, six seven years, yeah, uh, with five or six hours of sleep, if I'm lucky
0: at night. Which is, uh, when you guys hear what he's done next, is even more remarkable. <laughs> and we're going to get there. So, you get to the let's get so we, we they get you on a gurney. You're bleeding out. I got to imagine there's uh, you're probably almost dead from blood loss by the time you get to the hospital.
1: Yeah. So, um, from and. Keep in mind, everything from this point um, to when I got to the hospital is also – this is just things that I've heard from talking to nurses, things that I've heard from talking to witnesses that were there that day. So this is just the things that I've put together, the the stories I've heard from multiple people. Um, and so this is where my story – I'm telling this from, from other people from this point. So from what I've heard, they they get me out of the apartment complex – Um, the ambulance got there, brought me up in a gurney. Um, everybody said that it, that basically no one was in a rush at that point in time. You know, when somebody gets shot or there's an accident, you see them rushing down, get them in, rushing them out that from everybody, everybody that I've talked to, that was not the case. They were not in a rush getting me out of that basement. They were not in a rush getting me into the ambulance and they were not a rush getting me to the hospital. Um, from what I've been told, um, the girl that I was with at the time, also, you know, a drug addict, um, she followed the ambulance to the hospital. And from the two people who were in that car, they said that uh, the ambulance stopped and had all the lights on the way. They they were not in a rush to get me there. That's that's just what I've been told. So um, I get to the hospital and um, uh, there was a nurse. She was a wound care nurse. Bless her heart. Uh, Lisa Hansen, if you're out there, you're amazing. I love you. <laughs> you know, some of these nurses and doctors, they become family yeah, to me when you're in the hospital and for they're a angels. year. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But this this nurse was, um, um, from what I heard, uh, was the one who saved my life when um, I got to the hospital. Um, you know, as far as I was concerned, to them, I, do you know? Doa. <laughs> yep. Yep. And um, so she checked my pulse. She just happened to be walking through um, when they brought me in. Uh, check my pulse, and, and, you know, what are you guys doing? This dude's not dead. And so um, they ended up rushing me up for surgery, and miraculously, you know, I'm, I'm still here today.
0: Are there um, are there bullets still in your body?
1: Uh, there's two still in my body. I actually had um, one taken out of my leg that I always wore on my chain. Uh, I had a chain. It was just, a, you know, a reminder That's to a me every one. day. Yeah, and right. uh, uh. Uh, I was devastated. I went, I uh, chaperoned my kids' choir um, they did a choir trip to the lagoon, and so we were on the roller coaster, went oh, upside down, no. and it came off, and I lost it that day. So, <laughs> technically, you you still got one man. on you, right? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I still got a couple on me. I just they, they said they'll work their way out, you know, eventually. I don't know. What kind of holes are going to come out of? But, you know, they, so but they say that eventually they'll work their way out. And the one that they took out had actually started working its way out. It was like right on the surface.
0: Wow. So you could see it poking its, through.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a little lump. Wow. So there's still one in my arm. And um, I think there's uh, one in some shrapnel in my arm, uh, one in my chest somewhere. And then I believe there's still one in my left leg.
0: Is there any danger of those moving
1: in any area of... No they, no. That, no, they weren't concerned about that at all, just where they're at.
0: And do you recall how long the surgery was? Uh, so um,
1: I was in a coma, um, induced coma, from uh, the time I got there for three months. In a um, coma for three a, months? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, wow. I'm completely out of it. And um, so I don't remember anything... Um, for that, those three months, um, when I started to come through, that was, wow. it was a trip because you've been out for so long and, uh, you know, and in a induced coma for, for part of that time. And so there's just so much drugs that are keeping you under. And so when I started coming through, uh, you know, started waking up, uh, they had to start strapping me to the table mm-hmm. because when I, when I'd come through, like my dreams, I couldn't differentiate, differentiate my dreams what was going on with reality so they always kind of blended together and like that's the the trippiest part when you're when you're dreaming but then the people that are in your dream are actually standing next to you you know mm-hmm. and you're like who are these people and uh so like I'd, I'd be trying to get away get on a boat and then when i'd go to get on the boat i was attached to a chain mm-hmm. and those chains were you know them strapping me to the table and so i'd be yanking you know trying to break the chain and and there's, you know, even then, um, I was still big enough to where it would take, you know, seven or eight nurses um, and doctors <laughs> to hold me down to the point where they could, you know, yeah, knock me out again. But uh, uh, so that was
0: that was a, a hard part for me. Were you in? Uh, did they eventually put you in restraints or anything? Leg restraints or yeah, handcuffed and they all had that my stuff?
1: they had my arms and, and legs um, both strapped to the to the table for at least a few weeks. Wow,
0: so you come out of the coma, and you're and now
1: when I came, when I came out and started was conscious about what was going on, where I was at. Um, uh, you know, I knew what had happened, but um, I I had no idea how long I had been there. I didn't I didn't have any idea how long I had been out, and I couldn't talk to anybody because I had a trach in so. Mm. So there's no talking. But they'd hand me this, oh, God, I hated this fucking machine. (laughs) It was this little, uh, uh, like, tablet. And so they would give it to me, and and I would have to type what I wanted or or whatever. But I'm so droggy from the drugs, and, like, I'd misspell something, and I'd just get frustrated and just give up. And so communication with people was very, very limited, and telling them what I needed was limited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't drink or eat anything. Um, They got a tube feeding me, so... You know, there's only so much that they can feed you through it too. When I got shot, I was 220 pounds. and When I woke up, I was 135 soaking Whoa. wet. So you're talking skin and bones within that that um, three months that I was in a coma, um, I had lost a whole person. You know, yeah, literally a whole person. And um, so I remember the first time, um, you know, I had been out of the coma. It had probably been a month. Um, I hadn't left the hospital in, in almost a year. And my my son, my oldest son, was had a soccer game, and and you know I asked him if I could go watch a soccer game, and and uh, I, I will n- never forget regretting something so much as being wheeled onto that, you know, over to the field and seeing my kid look over, and just the the, the shame, yeah, that was on his face. You know, this, this is my dad. He looks like a skeleton being wheeled over. Yeah. Um, so I just I had regretted going to that game. I regretted leaving the hospital and i did not i didn't want to leave the hospital for anything after that nothing like there was they
0: tried to get me out but nope there's no way you're getting me out of here it, so and then now you've got clearly legal troubles waiting for you you've got medical bill bills waiting for you so now you've created a whole other mountain of shit of shit to climb out of you've been in a coma you're shot 21 times and it in 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 a way your life's worse, way worse. Yeah, yeah. You're clean by <laughs> by, uh, by uh by <laughs> what do you want to call that? By um not by your own accord. Yeah,
1: it was not by choice. No. And uh you know, even after 21 bullets, after after getting shot 21 times, um, I think back now and when, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, if if I could get out of this hospital, I would go straight to my guy And smoke a bowl just so I could forget about everything that is happening in my life right now. Everything.
0: That was like your first, like, that was an ongoing thought? Like, I just got to get out of here and get high. Yeah.
1: And so um, the hardest part for me um, through my hospital stay, it wasn't the fact that they were ripping off bandages and putting them back on, you know, four or five hours out of the day, sometimes straight. You know, that gets painful after a while and they're pulling gauze, you know, out of holes that are tunneled through my leg because of infection. I mean, this this was a process every single day, just them keeping me Like to alive. not get
0: staff, yeah. right? Or yeah. further infection. MRSA,
1: you know, because yeah. I got all that while I was in there. So they had to be really careful. So, um but wow. it, it wasn't the change in, you know, ripping off bandages four or five hours out of the day. It wasn't um, the pain that I was in. Uh, the hardest part for me throughout my entire hospital stay was every time, every day, every day they would have to wheel me somewhere, you know, whether it was to x-rays, to CAT scans, whatever it was, I don't, I, there was very few days that I didn't have to go somewhere in the hospital. And, um, I just remember every single day dreading the elevators because when they, um, sorry, uh, she came in when they would wheel me to the elevators, um, they open the doors and there's nothing but mirrors. Oh. And the hardest thing I had to do was look at myself. Mm-hmm. I hated that person. Yeah. I hated him. I hated who I saw. Mm-hmm. I hated who I was. And and I just kept thinking over and over, why the fuck did you keep me alive? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this was the <laughs> the hardest torture that you could put me through was just making me look in that mirror and there was nowhere I could look in that elevator besides down at my hands that that I could avoid it
0: did you did you find religion did you as we start to rebuild you here like where do you find the strength to resist drugs and turn your situation that seems I me mean, ultimately hopeless and
1: well and even when I so the hospital became my sanctuary because I knew the minute that, that I walk out of that building I'm fair game you know the minute that I'm out of there, the police can come get me. The, the minute I, I'm released from the hospital, they can come pick me up. Yeah. And so just because I was shot 21 times, that is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, people. You know, I was still facing the modified firearms charge. Um, they had a, a list of other charges from that day, you know, right. um, breaking and breaking or destruction of property, evading. The list goes on and on that day. Like, right. there was a sheet. But um, So after I had been shot... Uh, with all those charges and charges from that day that they had slapped on me I'm I'm technically in police custody so that makes them liable for the bill so it was about oh. 2 weeks into it that they they dropped all of those charges uh releasing them from from any liability for wow. the hospital bill okay so th- so the first couple of weeks was on the police force yeah then... i i had two officers standing outside my door for 2 weeks okay nobody could come in or out unless you were family and then they dropped all charges
0: mm-hmm. because they didn't want the monster. League or, Which uh,
1: ended up being like a million six hundred and something thousand dollars.
0: And how do you work your way out of that? Uh, Still. Well, so
1: I, I take all the change out of my car, you know, in the <laughs> seat and the couch. <laughs> awesome. Uh, uh, um, you know, the, the hospital, um, after so many so long, um, it, when they tried to build the police, the police aren't going to pay for it. They tried to bill me. There's no way that I can pay for that. You know, it, it's a write-off. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, it's, it's a write-off and, and you know, some of that uh gets put on the taxpayers, which, you know, is is a shitty thing, but it, it it's just it is what it is. I'm still alive today. And and so, um you know, thank and doing you, a thank lot you to, for all the taxpayers for yeah. keeping, <laughs> for yeah, keeping man. me alive. But right? um, there's still some of those that my credit is, is shot today uh. because I've been trying to uh, navigate and see, because I think that all of them have been taken care of or written off, and then I'll get one in the mail. One pops you know, out. So, uh, because there's so many different people that are taking care of you, anesthesiologist, the, yeah. the surgeon. The, you know, there's there's 20 different bills that I'm getting, and I have yeah. – so it's, it's been difficult kind of navigating through that. But
0: And uh, not to keep dwelling on some of the others, I want to I get out of it. No, there, not at all. At what point when they're doing the bandages and they're doing the x-rays and, and there's that pain, do they go, hey um, – you're going to lose your leg or you're going to lose where is it from your knee down
1: uh, right. yeah right below the knee so um, I had actually like, been released I remember the day that they released me from the hospital once again I was it kind of became my sanctuary so um, you know the, the nurse comes in and, and she goes guess what today's your day you get to go home and I just remember immediately I started sobbing like, Yeah bawling like a baby and she's going you know what what's wrong did i say something wrong i was like the the minute you release me they're going to come get me how am i supposed to take care of myself in, in jail when yeah. i can barely walk cuz i could barely walk at this point in time you know i still have my leg but um i had to use a, a walker to to get you know 10 feet and then i'd be winded done and so um but she goes well look you know we we're supposed to call and let them know but um i think that we're going to accidentally forget to do that so Take whatever you time mm. that you that we give you, mm-hmm. you know and so once again, St Al's was yeah. absolutely incredible yeah. from, i mean i can i I cannot say enough good things about the nurses and the doctors there, but so they gave me just a little bit of time that I needed, you know, so when I got home, um I was home for uh probably two months before they came knocking okay, so um <laughs> when they came knocking, I still had. You know, wound vax tubes, and and still using a cane to make it anywhere. You know, I progressed from the wheelchair to the walker to the just using a cane. But I, I still get winded really easily. And but when they came. I still look like a hot mess. And so um, they were coming to pick me up that day. But when they saw me, they, they, I see one of the guys immediately get on the phone. He goes outside and he comes back in. He says, this is your court date. Be there. Yeah. And so. They knew you weren't a fly risk. Yeah, and... yeah, I wasn't going anywhere. Um,
0: Now, were you tempted to use when you're home? Uh,
1: Did you use? So, um, no, I didn't use um, when I was home. No, I was staying. So I staying with my mom and and bless her heart. You know, she every day was getting up helping me get dressed helping tie my shoes I only have one hand that works now so I still have my left arm but um, the the hand has very limited mobility I, I have a pretty good grip but I can't open it back up so you know my, my mom's helping me with everything you know feeding me tying my shoes and so just one thing at a time you know you start to when you do things and you figure out how to do them over again those little things become your victories and you sure. take them where you can get them and so tying my shoe for the first time with one hand, you know. Boom, you know, you get excited. Look, Ma, I tied my shoe. You know, I can do this. And so, um, you just start... Once you can figure out how to do one thing, then, okay, if I, if I can do this, then I can do this. And so, it was just little by little, and um, I still knew that I was facing jail time, so there was... It was hard to find real joy in anything, because, like, I, I, I'm like, I just got shot 21 times. I'm, I'm a mess, and I still all I have to look forward to I, I just, is jail is jail like that's yeah. and so it was really hard to be happier or, or get yeah. excited about anything when that's all that's on going through your head day in day out and you know once again uh, I was a shit person so if I did a lot of things to a lot of people in those two years and you know, what if I go to jail and, and I have a bunch of guys there that you know got beef with me because I went and collected from their their cousin or whatever it is you know <laughs> well,
0: hold on dude I I'm gonna say this you got street cred, dude. You roll into jail and shot twenty one times. Nobody's messing with that dude because he can't <laughs> die. Right? I mean I know that they had to have that bravado had to have entered your mind at some point. Like, okay, yeah, maybe dude's got well, I mean you're 130 thirty five pounds. I mean you're probably like he you got nothing, but yeah, you got yeah. you got tons of street cred.
1: So I, I um had once again I had my legs still. Um it was probably about six months I'd been home. Um They set my court date uh, from when they came that day. I think my court date was set out like five months or six months. Um, And so during that time, um, I I started going to the gym. Like I was in the gym daily um, just trying to get some health back, you know. Um, Just normal PT, just range of motion. And And so uh, the physical therapist um, – that I went to probably twice. It's like, this, this dude is not pushing me, you know. Yeah. He doesn't know what, where I'm at. And, then, you know, when you tell them, um, they're trying to be really cautious. They're doing their job. And so, but the things that they were doing, I just felt like I could do way more for myself. So I just started going to the gym by myself. And, and it was about probably three months after that, um, I went in, because they have been trying to get my leg to heal up. My, my right leg, they're just, you could see all the muscles. Um, There's a huge open wound on the on my calf. And so, uh, you know, I'm packing gauze probably five inches down in the wow. front of my leg in three different spots every day, you know. And, and so they, they just couldn't get it to heal. And so the doctor said, look, if we send you to jail with it like this, most likely you're going to get MRSA. You're going you're gonna to get something and you're not going to get treated the way you need to be, and you're going to die. And so we think that the best option is to amputate the leg. Mm. And so um, at that point, I had just been through so much, mm. and, you know, in this 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 year time period that it did I just remember it, it not even fazed me. I was just like, well you going to cut the leg off, cut it off, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of took the doctor's back. They're like, whoa, like no one's ever just handled it. You know, do what you got to do, man, chop it. Like usually that's a big deal for somebody, something that they got to think about. And I was just like, let's get it done. Let's do it, you know. And so they uh, scheduled the the amputation, and then they had to push my, um, when I had to go turn myself in, they pushed that back like, like three months. And so I got okay. the leg amputated um uh when i had to go turn myself in it it was i had only been on my leg for a week um because they give it like almost two months for it to heal to the point where they can uh you know the stitches are out everything's closed up and uh so when i got my first leg like it hurt to put that thing on and i remember i could only take a couple steps at a time and so um it was brutal when i had to turn myself in i'd only had it a week so um i'm not moving fast anywhere and um the prison I was at, because it was uh, federal, um, they sent me to their federal medical facility, one of them, which I use that term very lightly because <laughs> you're not you're not really getting any medical attention. They just have a doctor that actually is there more than the other prisons. So, um, you know, I, I, I ended up getting amputated. I, I get to prison only a week after having my leg. And I just remember, um, you know, that was probably my rock bottom. Is mm. when, mm-hmm. you know, I'm standing in front of this gate, it's about to turn myself in, and and at the time, I'm I'm just thinking. I just remember, I'm I'm never going to get out of this place. This is this is my coffin, mm. because I, I, you know, in my head, I'm going. As soon as I walk in here, all the, all the other shit that I was doing is going to catch up to me. All these other charges are going to start coming at me. I'm never coming out of this. That's what that's. What was your sentence? I uh, the original. So. Uh, I was facing up to five years, and uh, I think if I hadn't got shot, the judge probably would have gave me every day Mm -hmm. of that five, Mm -hmm. Um, so at at court, he said, Mr. Willis, you seem to um, have to learn your lessons the hard way, and he goes, I think you've learned uh, more lessons than I can ever teach you, and nothing I can give you is going to even amount to what you've lost, you know, physically. And so I ended up getting the, the mandatory minimum, um, which was uh, like, I think it was like 24, 26 months, something like that. And uh, so I, I did um, 18, 19, 19 months um, actually in prison. And then I, I had six months halfway house when I got out.
0: When you were in, how much did you weigh going in? Did, were you able to put some back on? Yeah,
1: I was. Um, I was able to put some back on and... So when I went into prison, I was probably sitting about 170 okay. at that point, so um, I don't look like still skinny you know, dude, a walking like... skeleton, but yeah, yeah but... definitely for yeah. a guy my size, I was, I was thin. Yeah. but you know, in prison they they don't feed you anything but carbs. It's like everything is just carb, carb, cake, carb, <laughs> cake, carb, carb. That's their, <laughs> that's their meal. Cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there was cake. And uh, so it, it wasn't very long. I mean, I'd say probably six months. As soon as I got there, um, you know, immediately I, I, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to focus on getting healthy. And so, but the weight, the weight yard. This was one of the prisons that still fortunate enough that they had um, a, a weight pile. You know, weights you could work out with. Um, and so, but it was a quarter mile walk down to the to where the weight pile and, and the you know uh, baseball field and stuff were. So the their wreck area basically was a quarter mile walk and I you only have five minutes movement time so you had to get to wherever you're going in five minutes or you get in trouble. And <coughs> and so I'm I'm like gimping and, yeah, and like it hurts. I got like to there. I'm having to stop. And so I don't remember how many times I got in trouble that come on Willis move your ass you know and I'm just going, dude I'm I'm moving as fast as I can but they they don't care if I'm missing a leg, they don't care if I was missing two legs. As long yeah. as I get to where I I need to be in five yeah. minutes, that's all they're concerned yeah. about. And so I, I just remember the first time that I made it in five minutes, the CO, he goes, good job, Willis, and high five me. <laughs>
0: Dude. <laughs> I did it. So I got, I have this, I'm picturing this scene in my head. So you roll into the weight yard, you're tatted up, you take your shirt off, and your body is exposed for the first time with holes. I mean, our dudes, they know your story going in, Our dudes going up, to, you're missing a leg, and and... And our guys like, what the fuck?
1: Or it's in prison. Were they messing
0: with you? Like, what was the? No,
1: I, and that was a in prison. It's a lot of things are just like how you see them on in, in movies and and all that. Like they, it's so crazy to me that even in this day and age, that um race is such a huge mm. thing in prison. Like your color, of your skin yeah. dictates where you sit, mm-hmm. dictate uh, dictates who you hang out with. And I just remember going in because, I mean, my best friend on this planet is black. You know, uh, I grew up kind of in the hood, you know. So I, I <laughs> Mexicans is what I grew up with. Yeah. Like in, in Colorado, where I was raised, it was predominantly Hispanic where I was at. And so the school that I went to was predominantly Hispanic. There was yeah. five white kids that went to my school. So I was always a minority growing up. So um, the racing was really weird to me going. I, I, I knew it was like that, but I never I, I was never OK with it. And I just. I, I told myself going in don't change who you are for any of these fucking guys in here mm. and so um i i didn't know how that was gonna turn out for me but i i never let that get to me so like the white dudes immediately when i get there like you know you need anything brother you know we'll yeah. take care of you and as soon as i told one person how i lost my leg it was like the day later uh, the every whole, the whole prison knew you know yeah. this dude got shot 21 times and It spreads like wildfire you know in there because it's new news is
0: dude that is just gangster status (laughs) (laughs) i can't who who's there's no one it's you know there's probably dudes in there maybe shot two three times and whatever yeah 21 Uh, times
1: yeah and and so um the uh i was really really fortunate man the dorm that i was in you know there's two different kind of um, cells that they had at Terminal Island sounds like a pleasant place too. Terminal Island, that's where I did my time. Where is that? Uh, it's in Southern California. Al Capone actually did time there. It used to be a, mil- uh, a naval base, and then the, you know, back in the day, they they changed it into a, a federal uh, penitentiary. And so, um, but you couldn't beat the weather. Southern Said, seventy no degrees, doubt. man. I'm on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. No. You know, I, uh, <laughs> no matter how good the weather, no matter the fact that you know. I was actually in a, a prison that when I walked out the doors, you know, I, I'm sitting there looking at the ocean. And so there was much worse places I could have been locked up. Um, and I, once again, I felt really fortunate that
0: that's where I ended up doing my time. And so obviously there are drugs available in prison. You can get whatever you want. You can Get whatever you want. Yep. Are you using? Are you fighting it every day with everything you have?
1: No, at, at that point in time, it, it wasn't. Um, it, I, I didn't want it you know at that point in time and and i knew that anything that i did in there like i don't want to spend one day Mm -hmm. more than i have to in this place not one not one fucking day i don't want to be in this place longer than i have to be you know no matter like i said if you're looking at the ocean no matter you know how nice the weather is when you have somebody telling you when to sleep when to eat when to get up when to work you know every aspect of your life prison the punishment is being taken away from everything you love, and unfortunately, in the prison systems today, um, they're not set up for rehabilitation. They're not. There's there's no programming that they can put you through that's set up for you su- to succeed. That you're just a number. You're you're uh, you're a number, and, and you're making somebody money. It, it's a it's a corporation. You know, prisons are set up to where they are making. They you know they talk about the cost of prisoners being in there. Um, but what they don 't tell you is is that these prisoners are working every day for for their stay at pennies pennies on the dollar yeah. you know my my first job that I had there uh, was twelve cents an hour that 's what I was making twelve cents an hour and so um, uh, my second job I got fortunate enough. Um, I got lucky and, and the job that I got bumped up to was 25
0: cents an hour. Baller. <laughs> now, are you getting those like every two weeks and are you buying Doritos with yeah, those or like yeah. what do you do with it? I like think what? you got to check once a month. I mean, okay. it was every
1: two weeks. It was every two weeks or, or once a month, but you know, you get a check for $30 for a whole month's pay. And you know, that's that's is that toothpaste. commissary for you or are you it is? Like, yeah, so yeah, yeah, toothpaste and not. And you know, I'd buy a thing of ice cream. That was my one yeah, thing yeah. That I did every two weeks. Is I'd get a thing of ice cream and and you'd sit down and enjoy your your ice cream. But uh, so, um, you know, my family just my mom. I can't say enough about my mom, man. No matter mm. what happened, she for some reason she always saw something better. So, you know, she always. Um, she saw something that, that I just couldn't see at the time. And, uh, so, you know, once a month, she would put a hundred dollars on my books and, and, um, you know, that hundred dollars stretches a long way. When somebody cares enough to put a hundred bucks on your book, those people become your lifeline, you know, and, and my mom just never gave up
0: on me, man. So during that time, you obviously have plenty of time for self-reflection and, do you start to think, like, <clears throat> how do I rewrite my story?
1: So the changing, the pivotal point for me when I was – I had probably been in for about a year. Uh, maybe – no, it wasn't even that long, probably maybe six, six, seven months. And the only people that were really talking to me at the time were my mom and my sister. And, uh, you know, me and my sister have always been close. I have two brothers and a sister, and, and uh, she's always been – the closest out of my siblings. And so um, she actually lived down in Huntington Beach, which was about 45 minutes away from where I was at. And so um, she was the first person to come visit me. And, um, um, you know, me and my sister got really tight in that time. And she she sent me a letter about six months in, and the letter was really, really short. I remember it was just like three or four sentences. You know, I know you, you have a hard time. Um, you're having a hard time with this. But I just want to remind you that you are here for a reason. Mm. You're wow. still alive for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I love you. And that was all the letter said. And inside the letter, um, I still carry it with me. to in my wallet. But um, it was just a little little card about the size of a business card. And on the front of it, it had Jesus sitting on the bench next to a rough-looking kid It said, Lost and Found. And uh, <laughs> um, when she sent me that, it was the first time in years that I could see a little light. At the end of the tunnel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I had felt completely alone um, for a long time. And for some reason, that card, I'm not a, I'm not a very religious guy. I'm, I call myself spiritual. Um, I believe that everything in this universe is energy. And the energy you put out into mm-hmm. the universe is the energy that's going to come back to you every single time. Mm-hmm. So if you're putting good energy out there, I believe that's what comes back to you. I don't, I don't know that I believe in any one God as a, a entity, you know, um, there's something out there that, that we don't understand, and I don't know if we ever will. Um, but I just remember when I got that card, I could see a little light at the end of the tunnel, and I grabbed onto that light with everything I had. And, and, and I, just, I just decided that every step that I took um, was going to be in a forward motion, um, and that when I got out of prison, um, I was going to be a better man than when I came in. And so every day I was just making sure that I was doing something to make myself better physically, to make myself better mentally. And so when I walked out of the prison, I I, I just had a different mindset. Um, I just wanted to help people. I didn't know how that looked. I didn't know uh, what that was going to be like, but um, I, I just knew I wanted to share my story and, and and help people. And so I started knocking on doors. Like schools was the first place I hit. And I don't know how many schools I talked to that, um, I got shut down. Like, no, no, you, <laughs> we don't want you in here. Nope, nope, nope. I can't tell you how many times that door got slammed in my face. And how many times I got told, no, um, my, my opportunity came, um, that first year after I got out, uh, with the, Idol meth project, they called me up and they said, Hey, you know, your story is incredible. We've been, you know, following it since it happened. And, um, we would love it if you came and spoke with us to a school and that was my end and that's where I caught fire um that first time I went in and I, and I spoke to a group of kids it was a small group maybe 30 kids and um I just remember that first time speaking to them and and I could see the kids immediately that when I get to certain points in my story I could see the look on their face that they were going through it or that they, were, they had a family mm-hmm. member going through it so mm-hmm. I I could pick out the ones that were going to stay after and, and talk to me and mm-hmm. And um, those kids, when they tell you, you know, your story changed changed my whole life today, yeah. you know, those things were huge wins for me. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was doing something worthwhile, that yeah. that I was making a difference. And, and like I said, I, I caught fire, man. That that first year I started speaking with the Idol Meth Project, I spoke to more kids in the state than all of their other volunteers combined. So all of the volunteers the at Meth has the project has speaking all over the state. I, I spoke more than all of my hit, like every single school. It, I never said no. They, when they would call me, Hey, can you speak here? Yep. I'll be there. And so, um, you know, after that first year, um, schools started talking about my story and, and so other schools, schools started calling me and I started getting, you know, calls to go speak to more and more. And, and, um, over the last, you know, I've been out since, um, 2000 and, um, beginning of 2011, and so in, in the last, you know, nine years, I've spoke to over 100,000 kids now um, you know, throughout the country. You know, this is all the way down from Florida
0: to, to Washington. So have, um, you, have you ever been approached for like a TED talk?
1: Uh, no, I, man, that's, I, that's list, dude, man, that's on my list. Dude, you are
0: a candidate and a half to do that. I mean, again, this, the strength of your message and the, the strength of your character. And even just uh, I just love like you came out. And like I feel like a lot of people that maybe came out with your circumstances, I don't, I don't think they would have jumped to, hey, i want to go speak to kids and share my story. Like I, I think I understand on a base level, but you went out and did it and then on top of that were rejected in the beginning. A lot of guys might have just went, whatever, I'm out. And it sounds like old you might have done that, right? Yeah. Just pfft, F the world, what I'm trying to give to whatever. No, you pushed yeah, I, tr- I tried, man. I'm, tried. I'm over it. Yeah. No one wants to hear from me. Man. And, but no. And you pushed through that and you went on to, to influence clearly a, a remarkable number of kids and, and to this day, but your story's not over. Not, There's not, more. That was,
1: that was just kind of the beginning. <laughs> and, and, you know, me going in and speaking to these kids, um, and, and having those kids come up to me and, and and tell me you know that something i said whatever part of the story they took from that that they that they listened that they that they took away something from it and maybe just maybe i was the pivot the pivotal point for them to where instead of going right they went left you know and so um i really that when i say i caught fire man i caught fire like there was no, I don't know if you've seen the movie Yes Man with Jim Carrey, where he, he has to say yes to everything. No, uh, so check it out. So that that's how I felt for this couple yeah. of years that just anything that came my way, yes, 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 yes. And, um, you know, I, I a year after I got out, um, I ran into a dear friend of mine that I hadn't seen in about seven years. Um, she had gone through some hard things, um, herself. And uh, when we ran into each other, we had just been friends for a really long time. And uh, she's my wife today, she's mm. a you know, incredible, incredible woman, incredible woman who um, really she's been a huge part of my success. And so we start going to the gym and and, um, you know, we, we both have um, a martial arts backgrounds. Like I, I boxed and, and she was a uh, taekwondo for, for years. And so we were trying to find a boxing gym and we ended up at this MMA gym. And so we start training MMA and my wife is just incredible. Like she, she, is everything. She's like a sponge. She's just soaking it up. And so, um, you know, I want to compete too. So we're doing like, I do a couple of, uh, um, jujitsu competitions and, and my wife is, is starting to take like real fights, you know, which is giving me anxiety through the roof. (laughs) So we're, you know, we're, we're doing MMA. Um, I had, after two years, I had, I had got my first running blade. And so um, I remember that first. So I got it right when we started going to the MMA gym. And every day before practice, they would do a mile loop. And um, I just remember the first time I put on my running blade, and I tried to run a block, and I threw up, and then I walked the rest of the way. <laughs> but I, you know, every day, I'd try to run one block further. And so it was you know, probably uh, we'd been there about a month. And when I and when I ran that first that first mile, when I ran that first mile loop, and I finished that, that was like um, there's very few times in my life I felt so accomplished than that one mile run. And so I, I remember I ran it all the way, and I'm just everybody's high fiving me, I'm getting hugs, and, um, and at that moment I decided um, I had heard about a run the dirty dash um, a little a few weeks prior. And I was thinking, I want to do that run, man. I Is guess, that five k or something? Yeah, five k. Yeah. And um, so I got home that day from running my first mile, and uh, I decided I'm going to do a five k. So we signed up for the Dirty Dash. So we're doing jiu We're, you know, I'm going to do this five k. Um, when I finished that first five k, and I came across the finish line, and just people are lined down. You know, it was, it was crazy to me. People were just lined up down the sides, just cheering me on. And yeah. and uh, when I crossed that finish line, man, it was it was incredible. Yeah. And I. And so then I I really caught fire, you know, physically with with pushing my body and see what what was left of it, what I could do with it, and
0: and, and then before meth, you were were you a good athlete? Were you? Uh, yeah.
1: So through um, high school, uh, since I could walk, I I was a soccer player. I kicked the ball, and uh, um, uh, varsity all through high school uh, had a scholarship for soccer. Um, to a couple colleges and, and um, turn those down. Uh, you know, I was too concerned about partying and hanging out with my friends yeah. to go
0: to college. Right. So you know, priorities. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so the foundation for all this fitness is there uh, to begin with. So it's not foreign to you. And-
1: no, no, and, and um, all through my you know teens and twenties, I I was no stranger to a gym. I loved that was one thing I always loved going in the gym and pushing weights. It was just a good stress reliever. You know, you get, get in there and get it, you feel better when you come out. And, uh, so, um, uh, I was no stranger to a gym. So getting back in it and it just became routine. And then, um, but running, you know, I smoked after high school smoked for years. And so, um, <laughs> that really limited my, my, um, uh, cardio, we should say. And so, um, getting that back and being able to run 5Ks. And then we were running half marathons. Yeah, and then, wow. You know, I mean, I think we ran something like 20-something half marathons in one Seriously? year. It was insane. Like every other weekend, we were running a race somewhere. And and uh, I, I really wanted to do a, a whole marathon, uh, but my, my leg would always— the most I ever could do was about 17 miles before my stump just got so uh, yeah. swollen and beat up that I couldn't go any further. Yeah. And so— um, I, I'd given up on on doing a half or a full marathon, but we're doing all these races, and and you know we're doing MMA, and and uh, then I get this call out of the blue, like it was, I thought it was a prank phone call. So, we, so we, I get this call, and he says, "Hey, I'm Dave, so and so with USA um, bobsled and skeleton. We were wondering, we keep hearing your name. We would love it if you came up and tried out for the USA team in Calgary. We're having a camp there in a couple of weeks, right before the World Cup starts. Would you like to?" come up and try out and i'm going like are you serious he's like yeah i'm serious like (laughs) i've never even seen a bobsled in my life but okay once again i felt like the yes man you know i was just any opportunity yeah yeah yes and so i said yes and a week later um you know i was scrambling to raise funds and a week later I, i meet the the um some of the other teammates in pocatello and and drove up to calgary with the with the usa team and um uh, I just have some incredible friends, you know, that I've made through that. But I get up to Calgary, and um, I'm training bobsled for two weeks. So I'm, they they need a, a strong guy for the push break. So because that push it makes a break uh, your race. You know, it'll kill you on your time or it'll win you a race. I'm doing bobsled, and so those of you who don't know what skeleton is, it's so luge is when you're on a one man sled going feet first. Skeleton is a one man sled you are going head first. And so I'm up there training for Bobsled for um almost two weeks and the whole time I'm there there's a couple coaches, uh Mike Quick and, and another coach that were up at the Calgary track and they're going, dude, you're built for skeleton. Get on the skeleton sled and I'm thinking, you know, you're watching these guys fly down the track head first and you're going, There is no fucking way you're getting me on one of those things. I mean it's a blur when they go by. You're going at speeds of, you know, eighty plus miles an hour. You know, and so uh I'm watching them, and, but they, they're going, dude, get on the skeleton. You're made for this. And uh, after about two weeks of getting beat up relentlessly in the back of that bobsled, um, I flipped. Uh, one of the drivers flipped us um, going out of turn five, uh, my first time to the top, because you, you have different starts that they start you at. They, there's a dominant start, which is the ladies' start. Um, ladies' start in German. And um, so usually that's where they'll start you, if, and you'll be training there for a few weeks until they feel comfortable enough to put you... From the top my first my first run down from the top dude flips the sled on coming out of turn five which i still don't know how he did that and it's it's like a being in a car wreck for a minute straight i mean because it's violent it's not slowing down you're still going down you're just going you know upside down and so you, i'm trying to hold i have one arm to hold myself in the sled with and right. I just remember going i'm going to get crushed when if i come crawling out you know sliding through the back of this thing like i'm i'm done and so everything that i have i'm holding on to the sled and we get down to the bottom and you know my hand just gave out you know i'm, I'm landing on the highest they get to the turn around they're going and uh, after like a minute are you okay i'm like yeah yeah i'm fine i'm all right just shaking up no like, you ready to go back up i'm going what? <laughs> out of your mind and uh but you know i'm there for a reason this is why i'm there so you, you get back in the saddle you go up and you do it again um but that so we're three days away from being done with training, three days away from being done, or from them starting the World Cup um, for bobsled and skeleton. And so, three days before the, the first World Cup race, Mike Quick comes up to me and says, "Hey man, you know, do you want to be a world class athlete?" And I said, "Yeah, man, that's why I'm here." He goes, "Do you want to make history?" And I said, "Absolutely." He goes, "Well, then get on the, get on the skeleton sled," and I'm going, "Son of a bitch, fine, fine, fine." So I, I tell him that I'll try it. So I'm I'm uh, I'm getting geared up you know to try the skeleton sled you know i got pads duct taped to my shoulders and my arms and uh (laughs) so uh i go down the first time from the dominant start and i just remember thinking this is it like i fell in love with it immediately like it was i wasn't getting beat up in the back of a bobsled you know how i finished was completely up to me not somebody else Mm -hmm. and so um I like immediately I fell in love with it when I got down the bottom of the track I was excited um that I was still alive (laughs) (laughs) uh, for sure so the second day um I have one run from and start and then um he says hey we're gonna put you from the top and I'm going wait a minute okay well this seems like it's kind of fast and and they usually don't push somebody through like that um but um, after I had done it, you know, I talked to Mike the next year actually, and I said, "Why did you put me on the top so quick? He goes, because I knew you could do it." Yeah. And so I go from the top, I make it down, the, and it was intense, so intense that first time. And you don't, you're going through the turn so fast that you know they're telling you what to do in these turns, but you're in the turn for a split second, and yeah. so you're trying to make three different three different steers, in, when in a turn that you're in for two seconds, and, and so. By the time I was trying to do what they were telling me, I was already out of the turn in the yeah. next one. And you, and you yeah. lose track of what turns you're in. And um, so I just remember after that first run from the top, just there's no way that I'm going to know what turn I'm in. I'm just going to be as quiet as I can on the sled. Because uh, when you're going that fast and the only things that are on the ice are your blades, you steer with your your knees and your shoulders. So real subtle movements. Like So mm-hmm. they say if you want to turn, look the way you want to turn, basically. So... When you look left, that right shoulder automatically kind of comes with you, right? Other way, that shoulder comes with you. So those little movements are steering the sled just enough. Um, And so I just remember trying to look. Most of the time I was just looking at the ice, but when you come out of a turn, you have a split second where you can look to see where you're coming into the next one. So it's just little peaks, boom, boom, you know, little peaks as you're going down. And so um, I just tried to be quiet as I could on the sled for the next two runs. And um, when I got down to the bottom of the track after my second run from the top, um, I see all these coaches and everybody standing over by the time and I looking at the time and I talking and, and he comes over and goes, look, um, no pressure, but you, you're two times they, from your runs just qualified you to compete in the World Cup tomorrow. Do you want to compete? Wow. And I'm after and that, I have, your two runs. Three runs. Never have run any the top. foundation yeah. for this at all. None. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just trying to be a sack of potatoes on this sled going down. And so now all of a sudden they're asking me if I want to compete in a World Cup. Then, uh, you know, basically the second day that I've – it'll be the third day that I've ever done this sport. And, and, and so he can see that I'm fighting with myself mentally. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, look, man, you came all the way up here. You, you earned those times take advantage of it, get on the sled, compete tomorrow. And so the, the next day I ended up competing in Calgary in my first World Cup race, and I took second. And so um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, it, it was just kind of uh, everything was happening so fast and, and uh, just so many amazing things were happening. Uh, you know, Now because of my finishing that, that first World Cup race, now I got um, invites to finish the World Cup tour with the USA team. You know, which went over to Europe next. We went um, Austria, Germany, Switzerland. Um, I think those were the only three tracks the first year. Um, uh, So I get the invite to go finish the World Cup tour over in Europe with the USA team, and that my first year I finished um, uh, third in the third in the US, fifth in the world for my first World Cup competition, which was just incredible. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting. Uh, ESPN shots, you know, I was on ESPN a couple times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah it was really cool, man. Uh, I made their top five list. I was number four. What's wow. up? They're, but uh, or their top ten list that they have um, on Neil Leverage show. Neil Leverage, awesome dude. Um, met him at uh, a wedding, anyway. But so it was, <laughs> it was just really kind of incredible how everything was just falling into place. And you know, when when I was going to compete. Um, I took my wife with me everywhere like we were a team you know she was part of the success she was part of the reason Mm -hmm. when when I wanted to give up she was there pushing me and so you know now we're we're competing all over the world which is crazy to me Um, I'm doing really well in the sport Uh, we're getting to see places that I never in a million years thought that I would ever see it's just been uh, incredible And, and doing these things is opening opening up just more doors for me to help other people. For me to share my my story on a larger scale right and um so i just i really had when i say i caught fire there was about a three-year period where where i was just on fire um i was all over the world i was i was speaking whenever i could it was things just were really really incredible
0: <sighs> and how far you've come right i mean
1: from where i was at um laying in the hospital bed not being able to look myself in the in, yeah. in the eye wishing I was dead, to, to standing on a podium in Switzerland, the only track in the world that's made completely out of ice. Uh, surreal. Surreal.
0: Yeah, yeah I and mean, you'll have those moments to cherish. I mean, it's crazy. Like, <clears throat> you know, you had said, like, you, you know, from your, you weren't able to walk to you, you, you were in and out of, you know, reality in that bed and to a podium is is, um, is it's a miracle. Yeah. I mean, it's, absolutely you can call it what you want, right? It's uh it's remarkable. Yeah. Certainly a testament to, you know, what you got in that in that tank, <laughs> man. Um you. and so and you continue today to spread your message. You you know, come on my show and and uh and, and you're continuing to do that. Um I mean what are the you know, what are future goals and aspirations for you? Or do you not even you just sort of day by day or uh so
1: That's I have some things that I I absolutely um, that I'm going to do in this lifetime. Um, One of them, I've been working on my book. um, So there's I've talked to quite a few publishers and and everybody loves the story. But the one roadblock that I keep running into is what your social media numbers like. Like that that has killed me on multiple times from book deals. And um, but that's a full time job in itself. Just promoting yourself on 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 social media and being present all the time on social media i i just didn't have the time you know and yeah are you is the book finished no um probably about a about quarter of the way through it right now are you writing yourself you have somebody yeah, co-writing with yeah, and i think that's i i stopped because um like i want i want to be able to tell my story with my own words but i'm not i think i'm a decent writer but i'm not a writer you know and so uh, I I really am trying to find somebody that's willing to sit down and write the book yeah. for me. And then, uh, you know, I'll probably uh, just publish it myself and, and see yeah. how it goes.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I, I mentioned that, you know, the TED Talk. I think for you, if you could get on a platform like that and share your story, I feel like, I mean, when I, as you were telling your story, I didn't realize you were writing a book. I, mean, I just, I'm, I'm vividly picturing movie scenes. Like, I just feel yeah. like it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a lot of content man a lot of remarkable heavy content
1: and, yeah and uh, such extremes on on both sides it, you know i mean to to be doing the things that i was doing like because i i was the worst you know worst kind of person man like uh, kicking indoors when when you got a, a gun shoved in somebody's mouth on a regular basis because that's the only thing that makes me feel alive at that point in my life. Yeah. I lost everything. I lost my kids. I lost my house. And the only time that I felt alive at all is when I was doing a collection. And, um, you know, I look back now and and a lot of those things that I did are things that I have to wake up and live with every single day, things that I think about every single day. I ran into a girl. Um, I had done a collection on... Her husband, and um, there was kids in the house. It was not a pleasant scene, you know. And when I walked in and, and she saw me, her face just went white, you know. I mean, fear. Yeah. And this is something that happened, you know, seven eight years prior. And uh, what do you what do you say? So sorry is so insufficient. It's, it's so it sounds like shit coming out of my mouth to something to someone that I did something that horrible too um it it was i tried to um apologize to this girl i ran into and i i tried to to sincerely apologize for it but once again i whether she accepted it or not i don't know um it was a very very short conversation um but you know those things are things that i still have to live with
0: they don't just go away for sure, but I mean, you're, <clears throat> look man, you know, actions speak louder than words and you're, uh, you know, you're, you're still paying it forward. Like you said, uh, affecting the lives of the kids in those auditoriums you see and change and just full course corrections. So, I mean, the way I look at it certainly, <clears throat> I understand, but all you can sort of do is have that positive effect going forward. And, uh, uh, and, uh,
1: you know, this This last year was really, I think, probably the hardest year that I've had since I've been out of prison. And and a lot of that is just, um, so I, I own a concrete company. That's what I've done my entire life, uh, my entire adult life. Um, I started doing concrete when I was 19. I was really good at it. And within, a, you know, a year and a half, I, I own my own company here in Boise. And, and uh, so that's always been what I've fallen back on. When I got out of prison, um, I went back to school. I got my bachelor's in computer aid, draft and design. I worked for an architectural firm, uh, New Design Architecture. They're awesome guys out in Meridian. and uh, But I found out real quick that um, I have a very hard time sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day. I just um, I don't know if it was ADHD, or, or, but I, I just had a really, really hard time with it. But I, I stuck it out, worked there for a year, and when I knew that I couldn't do this, you know, uh, for a living for the rest of my life, um, I went back to concrete and um, uh, at first, it was just I was just doing a couple jobs a month enough to bring a little extra money and and help us you know get a better place and and uh, But this year, I really had to make some big decisions with the company and um, i 've partnered up and, and we 're doing commercial uh, we 're starting to do commercial work this year we have a half million dollar uh, curb and gutter machine, so i 'm stepping in with the big boys this year and and um, that hasn't been an easy decision for me because concrete, um, when you have employees, when, when you're doing something like this, uh, it's going to take up all of my time. And, and where I have – where I struggle with this every single day, man, is I, concrete, when I started doing it again, it was just a means to an end. You know, it was a way for me to earn some extra money to get my book done and to enable us to have my own schedule. So we we were going and competing or I'm going speaking – I make the schedule I'm not having to ask for time off and so that was really my my motivating force going back into opening up my own company and but now I feel like it's I've had to make some decisions where you know um I've either got to take this step and and try to do this big and so I have a retirement you know something to retire off of or um but it was supposed to be once again a means to an end. And I just feel like it, this last year, it's really taken away everything, taken me away from everything that, that I find fulfilling in my life, that I feel mm-hmm. like I'm making a difference. And so it's been a struggle for me this year, man, because I, I don't want to be doing concrete, um, but I also have a family and, and people that uh, I provide for. Yeah. And so it's, it's been a really <laughs> tough for me to find that balance.
0: Yeah, I hear you, dude. I'm sure there's a way to, to, you know, continue on with the philanthropic side and, and, and your speaking, and do get that book done. I know, get it done. It's killing me.
1: I know, it's killing me.
0: I get it. So, well, if anybody
1: out there wants to help me write my book, yeah,
0: <laughs> seriously. So, yeah, let's. Um, so, if anyone wants to get a hold of you for uh, a speaking gig or an appearance or. Um, however, um, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: So fortunate enough, there is only one Dorian Willis on the planet. And so uh, (laughs) social media is really easy to find me. Um, It's Dorian, D-O-R-I-A-N, and Willis is W-I-L-L-E-S. And so um, I'm really easy to find on social media. That's usually the the way that people find me. Uh, But uh, you can um, send me an email at Dorian Willis, so D-O-R-I-A-N, w i l l e s the number one at gmail.com um and if you want to schedule anything that way or if or if you just you know need to talk if you have a family member going through it you know i always try to make time for for anybody that that needs me and so um feel free to email me with any questions that you have if if there's anything that i can do to help i'm i'm always always willing to be there um i think that's a tough question too that i get asked whenever i go speak man is you know, my, my mom's a meth addict, my dad's a meth addict, my brother's a meth addict. How do I help them? And with that drug, it's there's no easy answer. And, and so the, the answer that I usually have to give people is they have got to find their own rock bottom, whatever that looks like for them. Hmm. Um, because until you hit that rock bottom... Really, truly hit that rock. On there were several times where I thought I hit it, but I was nowhere close. <laughs> Damn, know? right. Where, where you think, well, how can life get any worse? You know, and and that's usually when it'll hit you six ways from Sunday and show you, okay, this is how it gets worse, asshole. And so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, you know, it's unfortunate that that's the answer I, I have to give. But there really is no easy answer for for um, addicts, and and the problem when you when you're a drug addict. Um, when you look in the mirror, that's what you see. You, you're not you're not a dad. You're not a you're not a son. You're not a business owner. You're just an addict. And and when that's all you see, when when you don't feel like you have anything else to offer the world because you're just an addict, um, a lot of time that's that's when people hit their rock bottom because they're tired of just being an addict, but they don't know you know, what else to do. And unfortunately with especially methamphetamines, you only get cleaned up usually one or two ways. And that's, um, when you get arrested and you go do your time for whatever, you know, whatever a hundred different criminal acts you're, you're doing as a meth addict until you're either sitting in a jail cell or, or sitting, uh, you know, on a table after you're, you're dead. Those are the only two ways that I, I really see most people ever get out of it. And so Jail, I think, can be a very, very good thing for especially addicts, you know, when, when you have nothing but time to think about how your life got here and, and when you really start taking accountability, that's when that's when real change happens in your life, because it, when you're still so busy pointing the finger at everybody else instead of taking that look in the mirror. And that's why, you know, I, I think any addict will tell you the same thing. <laughs> Looking at yourself is sometimes the hardest thing that we have to do as people. When you can truly look yourself in the mirror, when, you're, when you wake up in the morning and you go look at yourself in the mirror, do you love what you see? Do you, do you love that person? Because I can tell you right now, until you learn to love what looks back at you, you you can't ever help anybody else. You can't be there for anybody else if you don't even love yourself. So when you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and take the time to appreciate what's special about you, no matter what, you know, whatever it is. We all have talents. We all have things that we are good at. When you look in the mirror, remember those things. You know, tell yourself, you're amazing. You're amazing. And these are the reasons why you're amazing. Yeah. Every single day.
0: Dude, (laughs) You, um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I've been fighting back the tears the whole time <laughs> I've been <laughs> sitting here. Um, you just said it best a minute ago. There is only one Dorian Willis. Um, your star burns bright, my man. I am, uh, I'm honored to have you today, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart to tell the story. I think if you know, hopefully, there's people listening, like you said, and we can affect some positive change. Whether it's a family member that turns this podcast on to someone to hear it, or you know, you continuing your fight, it's um,
1: well, and it's I, awesome. You're I want to say thank you to you, man, because it's yeah. it's people like you that that take the time to to get to know somebody like me that that keeps me going. Yeah. I mean, it really does. So,
0: thank you. I dude. appreciate being here today. Pleasures all mine, dude. So. Thank you, guys. Um, this was a heavy one today. <laughs> um, I hope you enjoyed the brevity code today. Um, so stay tuned for more episodes in the future. If you like what you hear, subscribe. Subscribe today, people. <laughs> See ya.